welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I am the other host, Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? I'm great. Having a good summer? Yeah, I'm a little overly air-conditioned right now. Mm. It's a little cold where I am. The poor thing. I know. That was very, that's very... Shout out to all our viewers watching who have no AC at all. I know. Should, yeah. should we cut this out? Are we gonna, am I going to get canceled <laughs> as a... Uh, it's okay. AC imperialist. Yeah. <laughs> I can't work without AC though. So, no. It's tough. I mean, especially in this, in this East Coast heat, it's, yeah. it's tough. Well, thank God we have the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that's going to not do a lot for the climate. Yeah, that's right. Or I just learned this from David Dane at the American Prospect that, you know, how one of the big achievements of the act was that Democrats finally are going to uh, accomplish a long time goal of negotiating drug prices, right? Using yep. the government's power to negotiate drug prices. Well, it's only going to apply to a very small number of drugs and they're not going to kick in. These negotiations are not going to kick in for at least two or three years. So many seniors right now who could really benefit from this, uh, unfortunately, some people might not live to right. see the benefits. Yeah. So great job, Democrats. Yeah, go Dems, yeah. You know. Every every piece of legislation from the Dems is basically Democrats suck. Well, speaking of Democrats suck. All right, let's get into it. Should we do the four basic food groups? Yeah. Let's go to the videotape. I got Democrats suck, so let's just go to the videotape. The Biden administration's ruled out releasing roughly $7 billion in foreign assets held by Afghanistan's central bank on U.S. soil. That's according to The Wall Street Journal, which reports Biden's decision not to return the funds came after he ordered the assassination of al-Qaeda's leader in Kabul. This comes as the United States warns a staggering 95 percent of Afghans are not getting enough food, with that number rising to almost 100 percent in female-headed households. Earlier this year, Democracy Now! spoke with Masouda Sultan, Afghan-American women's rights activist. Human Rights Watch agrees with, with us. Uh, uh, the head of the U.N. agrees with us. The head of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband, agrees with us. Um, you talk to just about every humanitarian organization, um, any economist, they will tell you that a central bank's reserves belong in the central bank. But instead, we have just decided that Afghanistan cannot have its central bank reserves, that that economy will now be crippled. We just knocked the legs out of it, and the humanitarian crisis will just grow and grow. Afghanistan will be an aid-dependent country. Masouda Sultan is founding member of Unfreezing Afghanistan. What kind of sadist does this refuses to release billion seven billions of frozen afghan assets it's a sadist who waged a 20-year military occupation knew from the start that it was losing in fact sabotaged the best chance it had at winning back when it could have negotiated with the taliban but donald rumsfeld the genius said no we don't negotiate with terrorists so that led to a prolonged insurgency and led ultimately to the U.S.'s humiliating withdrawal a year ago. And now, because the U.S. was humiliated, the people of Afghanistan have to suffer even more by being denied of their own resources, their own money. And the U.N. is saying, what, 95 percent of Afghans are not getting enough to eat? It's disgusting. 20 million people, which is half the population, are suffering either level three crisis or level four emergency levels of food insecurity, according to the World Food Program. Over one million children under five are suffering from prolonged acute malnutrition. That's according to, again, the World Food Program. And the U.S. is helping by withholding billions of dollars of their government's own money. So... Ned Price at the State Department says uh, the presence of Ayman al-Zawahari on Afghan soil with the knowledge of senior members of the Haqqani Taliban network only reinforces the deep concerns that we have regarding the potential diversion of such funds to terrorist groups. So right now we're looking at mechanisms that could be put in place to see to it that these $3.5 billion in preserved assets make their way efficiently and effectively to the people of Afghanistan in a way that doesn't make them ripe for diversion to terrorist groups or elsewhere. Yeah, there's a thing in international law called collective punishment, where you don't punish entire populations to achieve war aims. And in this case, to you know purportedly go after al-Qaeda and, and the allegations that Taliban was harboring 
this Al Qaeda leader, so the whole population has to suffer. It sounds like a war crime to me, yeah. and it's also something that the U.S. is completely hypocritical on because the U.S. has harbored terrorists before, like the people who blew up uh, Cuban airliners and killed civilians, and uh, the generals and, and Nazis from and from right. from around the world that the U.S. harbored after the Second World War. The fact that right now the U.S. essentially supports the leadership of al-Qaeda in Syria, because al-Qaeda right now controls Syria's last rebel-held province of Idlib, and that's controlled by a group called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is just a new name for al-Qaeda in Syria. It's led by this guy, Mohammed al-Jalani, who was um, a former deputy of Zawahiri. He was actually sent to Syria by Al-Qaeda. And the U.S., because the U.S. has used Al-Qaeda in its regime change war against Syria, the U.S. is fine with Jelani controlling an entire province in Syria. And he basically has that province under the protection of Turkey, which is a U.S. ally in NATO. So completely hypocritical. No reason why the Afghan people should suffer a day longer just because one elderly Al-Qaeda leader was living in right. Kabul. And of course, they were doing this. The U.S. was doing this to Afghanistan even before Zawahiri was right, killed. Right, right. Yeah, it's ex post facto. Yeah. Justification. Yeah. Anyway, if Trump were doing this, a lot of Biden fans would be rightfully disgusted and calling it it out. That's right. But Biden's doing it, so it's not a war crime. It's just I don't know what tough, uh, tough decisions, hard choices. All right. Well, so for Republicans, suck. We have uh, a Republican who very much is on board with the Biden administration's policies uh, in Afghanistan and pretty much any other country that's been the target of U.S. regime change and military occupations. And that's Liz Cheney, who just lost her primary race in Wyoming, uh, defeated by a Trump supporter who basically ran against Cheney on the, the platform of the fact that Cheney went against Trump over the whole January 6th thing. But Liz Cheney is now talking about possibly running for president in 2024, she dropped a hint in her concession speech. The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed, he saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of history. Speaking at Gettysburg, of the great task remaining before us, Lincoln said that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people and for the people shall not perish from this earth. Wow, the humility there. Yeah, look, so this is a, there's a lot of Republican suckiness going around here, you know, in fairness to Liz Cheney, and I'm a gag a little bit at saying those words. She was targeted because she did stand up to Trump's lies about having his election stolen. So, you know, fair enough. But the thing is, Liz Cheney doesn't care about democracy or integrity. Liz Cheney only cares that Trump humiliated her wing of the party when he ran in 2016. He basically destroyed the Bush and Cheney dynasties. He called them out on the campaign trail for the Iraq war. And since then, the Cheneys have been on a revenge mission against him. They also just don't like he's bad for their brand. Their brand is regime change. Trump supports those policies. He carried them out. But he's too honest when he talks about, for example, stealing oil from Syria. You aren't supposed to say that. You're supposed right. to be like Dick Cheney and say that we're there to spread democracy and find uh, missing WMDs. So that's the source of her dispute with Trump. And really, policy-wise, did the Cheneys ever stand up to Trump? No, they actually voted with him constantly. And there's a, a tweet here showing just some of this. So this is from Kasim Rashid on Twitter. He says, FYI, Liz Cheney opposed the Voting Rights Act, Minimum Wage Increase, the Equality Act, Equal Rights Amendment, the George Floyd Act, Build Back Better, Infrastructure Bill, Inflation Reduction Act, the $35 Insulin Bill, Women's Health Protection Act, Anti-Gas Price Gouging Bill, and voted with Trump 93% of the time. And is also uh, a unhinged militarist who supports every single regime change operation, supports torture, uh, worked under the Bush administration to help destabilize the Middle East and furtherance of her father's agenda. And 
Republicans are in a state where none of those issues matter. It's just the fact that she went against Trump on his uh, stop the steal uh, scam. And uh, luckily, though, for Liz Cheney fans, she's hinting there in that speech that she'll be running in 2024. And my question is, will she be doing this as a Republican where she's no longer really welcome or as a Democrat where she's now treated as a hero? She's like worshipped every single day on MSNBC and CNN. So stay tuned. So is that why it's a Democrat suck? Because she's become a hero for Democrats? Well, so often, Katie, I mean, as you know well, mm-hmm. so many Republicans suck and Democrats suck and right. always be interchanged for the other. Right. It's a fine so, line, yeah. 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 I like the way she compares herself to Abraham Lincoln. I wonder if in the Civil War, which side? I have she to wonder. Been on, yeah. Liz Cheney would be on. Also, uh, she very much pushed back against Trump trying to pull out of Afghanistan. That's right. That's right. That's one of those rare occasions when Trump tries to do something sensible. Right. Again, I stress very rare. But yes, she sabotaged that along with members of the CIA who faked, who leaked fake claims about Russian okay. bounties being put on U.S. troops. And Liz Cheney was a, a major driver of that. Right. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. All right. Well, uh, for isn't that weird? I have a story. We can just click on this. It's a it's an interesting story and people should see the visuals. So reading at People magazine, um, Velveeta releases cheese infused martini that's garnished with pasta shells. (laughs) It's good news for cheese lovers. On Wednesday, Velveeta released their own unique spin on a dirty martini, the Veltini made with Velveeta infused vodka. The brand teamed up with BLT Restaurant Group for the unconventional creation. Select locations of the steakhouse chain will offer the martini for $15 during golden hour from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. But the cheesy cocktail won't be around for too long. It's only available for a limited time and while supplies last. While the savory beverage features Velveeta's signature cheese flavors through the flavored vodka, it also blends in olive brine and vermouth. The garnishes elevate the cheese theme even further. The Valtini will be topped with Velveeta stuffed olives and jumbo Velveeta shells and cheese, all complete with a cheese dip rim. You know how you just said that Democrats suck and Republicans suck uh, are often almost interchangeable? For me, this is could have been easily could have been. Isn't that terrible? Uh, Wilson, can we just show the the image? So I'm someone who I don't know about you, Aaron. I love dirty martinis when they're not made with cheese. <laughs> I love a dirty martini with vodka. I'll take a gin, but I prefer vodka. So you, ver, a dirty martini for people who don't know is um, a martini with a lot of olive and olive juice or olive mm. brine. But this is an assault, I think, on the, uh, on the dirty martini. I mean, I also really don't like a lot of cheeses. And in fact, I think that blue there are there are blue cheese stuffed olives. I don't know if you know about that, which scares me. I've had very bad. I, I once bit into what I thought was a ranch dressing and it was a blue cheese dressing. And I, I feel like I'm still not over it. It was like ranch assault. and blue cheese are not for everybody. I stay away from both. Both. Interesting. Well, yeah. I like ranch, but I cannot mm. deal with blue cheese. I mm. really feel like there's vi- you know how people overuse that word violence. But mm. for me, it really is violence. Yeah. When my mouth is subjected to blue cheese. cheese. Yeah. But you do like ranch. That's interesting. I do like ranch. Ranch, huh. they have a creamy, it has a teeny bit of kick, but not the kick that blue cheese has. Blue cheese. Mm-hmm. And I know people who I respect because they like blue cheese, but they get how gross it would be if you don't like mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So that's my, isn't that weird? Veltinis. That's very weird. That's very weird. If anybody orders a Veltini, please let us know how it is. Yeah. Use the hashtag, a useful idiots pod. Yeah. For isn't that terrible? I mean, I had so many options this week for Republican suck that I just had to use this for isn't that terrible? This is a story out of Mississippi. Check what the governor of Mississippi has to say. So this is Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi. And this is what he says in a new post. He quotes Ronald Reagan. Government programs once launched never disappear. 
Today, Mississippi, we are ending RAMP, a federal program that incentivizes people not to work by using taxpayer dollars to pay up for 15 months of free rent and utilities. RAMP was originally intended to help those struggling as a direct result of COVID. Yet like so many other government programs on Democrats' wish lists, it fundamentally lost its way and no longer serves its original purpose. Mississippians pay enough for their own rent. They shouldn't have to pay for others, too. So what he's doing here is basically Mississippi got federal money, not state money, federal money to help people pay their rent in the COVID era. And there's still millions of dollars left in that funding package that Mississippi got from the federal government. This governor, Reeves, is returning the money to Washington. It's not even state money. It's federal money. He's returning to Washington. So basically, he's telling residents of his own state, sorry, we're not going to help you. We're not going to let the, gov- the federal government pay help you pay your rent. We're giving it back to the government. So whatever, they can pr- presumably spend more money on Raytheon and Lockheed Martin to send off to Ukraine. And I like the way he tries to shame people and also imply that it's like Mississippians have enough, are paying enough, pay enough for rent. They shouldn't have to pay for other people's. Well, what about the people who can't pay their rent who are Mississippians? There's a, according to Reeves' office, there's $130 million remaining in this fund. That's a lot of money. Uh, and this is at a time when last year there was a, uh, a survey that found that more than 60% of people uh, polled were worried about uh, facing eviction or foreclosure. So at this time, when Reeves could be using the money that he's already been given to help these people, he's giving it back. That's so disgusting. That is genuinely terrible. What's not terrible is uh, that we have a great show for you coming up. Yes, we do. Uh, We are going to be joined by Chairman Omalia Shatella. He is chair of the African People's Socialist Party. And he was recently raided by the FBI before Trump was. That's the raid that's getting a lot of attention right now, the Trump raid. But this raid happened in late July. He was a trendsetter. Yeah. And the story is crazy. And very few people are talking about the story when they really should. So we're going to hear from him about what happened in that raid and about, you know, his broader history of political activism as a black liberation activist in this country. So let's go to the interview with Omali Yeshitela. excited to be talking to Amali Yeshitela, who is the chairman of the African Socialist International and the African People's Socialist Party. He founded the Burning Spear newspaper in 1968, which still exists. He's been a longtime advocate for reparations and participated in the International Tribunal on Reparations for African People, which was held in Brooklyn, New York in 1982. And he founded the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement in 1991. So welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, can you just start off by telling us what happened, recounting what happened on the early morning of July 29th? Yes. On that morning, my wife and I were sitting at the dining room table uh, preparing for the day. It was five o'clock in the morning when we were talking about things. And there was a, a doula class that was being organized, that had been organized and that would be occurring at our Center, the Uhura House here in, in St. Louis, where 20 uh, young African women were being trained to be doulas. It's part of the overall Black Power Blueprint uh, project that we have here in St. Louis in a city where uh, something like, and there are enough Black babies that die in the first year of life to fill uh, 15 kindergarten classrooms every year. So that's one of the projects that we were taking on. And we were talking about that. She had to get to the Uhura house. She was overseeing this project. And uh, I was actually preparing to go to the gym. So we were just sitting and talking about things. And suddenly out of the night, uh, this loud uh, booming uh, voice saying that uh, we should come out, the resident, the, the people who were in this residence should come out with our hands uh, empty and our hands up. And this is the FBI. And at first it was startling and uh, we weren't quite sure if this message was directed at us or not, because occasionally if there's uh, something like a tornado coming through, 
you'll hear this sound that comes out, warnings, et cetera. So we were, we were not sure what it was we were hearing uh, right away. And the voice continued to come and they actually used the specific address and said that people should come out with our hands up and our hands uh, empty. So, uh, and that this is the FBI. Explosions uh, began to happen all around the house. These flashbang grenades were going off and I was to learn later that they had actually penetrated uh, into the back stairwell in the house and had, uh, had detonated these flashbang grenades uh, in the stairwell. And, uh, but I didn't know at the time where it was coming from. And so I asked my wife, who's also a leader in, in our movement, um, to, uh, to let me go down first and, and she should get on the phone to contact people, let them know what was happening, that we were being raided. And uh, uh, she tried, but unsuccessful because they had jammed our phones, so we couldn't communicate with anybody. So I went down the stairs and uh, as soon as I uh, uh, was exiting uh, the stairwell in front of the house, there was this armored vehicle and I could see uh, these uh, camouflage wearing uh, FBI agents and I don't know who else there and and bouncing off my chest or hitting me in the chest were several of these laser dots that comes from automatic, automatic weapons. So uh, I, was, I was sure that they were going to kill me at that moment. And my wife uh, was following me out of the house and as I opened the door for her to come down the stairs, uh, a drone passed over her head going up the stairwell into the house. Uh, so uh, there was a command to, uh, to uh, come this way, come this way. And, and we walked uh, uh, toward uh, the person who was making the command, who seemed to be somebody with some authority. I was told to put my hands behind my back. They zip tied me. Uh, my wife, when she came down, they put handcuffs on her. Uh, they, they wanted us to sit on the curb uh, outside and uh, something that we didn't do. And uh, so I'm, and, and all the time this is going on, these flashbang grenades are still going off uh, around the house and perhaps in the house, in the stairwell of the house. Uh, they would break windows. They would uh, knock uh, uh, the doors in. And uh, I'm asking, what is this about? And they said that uh, we have a, a search warrant. And I asked to see the search warrant. Their answer was, well, I don't have it, but someone over here has it in some place in the vicinity. Why, why is this happening? They said that uh, later this morning, uh, some indictment is going to be issued in Tampa, Florida for a Russian national. And should he ever come to the United States, he would be arrested. At the same time, although I didn't know it, the office of the African People's Solidarity Committee, which is the solidarity front of our party, which is comprised of white people mostly who do work in 130 some odd cities and 30, and 30 states in the United States uh, around reparations and taking uh, the struggle of African people, that's their work into the white communities. Uh, uh, that center uh, recently opened uh, in South St. Louis, which is the majority of white uh, section of St. Louis was raided. They used uh, battering rams and knocked the doors in. They used the flashbang grenades. They taped uh, the video uh, cameras to make sure that they were not seen, their activities were not recorded, although they didn't succeed, absolutely. Uh, and upstairs, there's an apartment. They went to the apartment upstairs, two, two young uh, uh, part members of our organization, uh, white people uh, were there, they were handcuffed, they were at gunpoint, held at gunpoint. Uh, and then across town, the uh, homes of uh, Penny Hess and, and, and Kitty Riley, two other members, white people who uh, support us and are part of our, our movement and organization, uh, their house was raided. Again, you know, knocking doors in and holding them at gunpoint. And, they, they took in each of these places, they took uh, all of our devices, our, our uh, cell phones, our, our laptops, our iPads, uh, anything like that. They tons and tons of information, obviously, you know, like on these devices they have captured. And so at the same time in St. Petersburg, Florida, as this was going on, 
uh, Eastern time, uh, which would have been six o'clock there, uh, they went to uh, the Uhuru House in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, they used battering rams and knocked the doors in uh, there. They, they took our radio off, uh, off the air uh, for a while. They stole all kinds of devices, uh, uh, materials from our archives, uh, uh, et cetera, uh, uh, executing what they said was, uh, was a search warrant. And uh, they blocked off uh, an entire city block in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, and I guess they did that in part because in 1996, uh, a local uh, county, state, and federal forces attacked that same building. Uh, this time, they didn't use the same uh, excuse, uh, uh, but they had uh, the, the local government had murdered a 17-year-old uh, young man there, and uh, they the government saw us as primary organizers against that and organizing the community. So, uh, and, and they had trapped me and several other members uh, in that building. And uh, they used all the tear gas in the city of St. Petersburg, Florida on that building. They set, they set houses of fire uh, in the African community. They tried to set uh, our building of fire using uh, these uh, tear gas canisters that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, actually, you know, uh, actually can set fires, and they set fires in the trees behind uh, the building, etc. That was in 1996, and uh, I expected to die in that one, uh, and 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 I think would have died. Uh, this was, if you remember, we and fresh in the minds of everybody was what had happened to move in 1985, I think it was in Philadelphia, because uh, in addition to all of those troops outside, 300 strong. Uh, there was also light planes and a helicopter that came, that was also deployed. And, uh, and the community came out and fought them uh, in the streets and actually forced the helicopter down in 1996 uh, with gunfire. So I'm assuming that's part of what inspired them to block off the entire community so that people couldn't come uh, to the horror house when they made that attack at, at, at six o'clock in the morning there. Uh, and then they went to the residence of this incredible young leader, uh, Akilia Nai, uh, who is the one that oversees our information uh, production and, and distribution from the radios, from the newspaper that we have, from publications, et cetera. They went to her residence and they told her uh, that this time the St. Petersburg Police Department uh, knocked on the door, uh, inquired if she were uh, Akile, and uh, then told her uh, that someone uh, had broken into her car and that she should come out and she came outside to look inside her car. And that's when the FBI came from behind vans, et cetera. And they used that. They stole her, her cell phone, uh, et cetera. And uh, so that's more or less uh, how things uh, happen. Uh, and so you had this, this two-state assault, just the most ridiculous, asinine uh, kinds of uh, of uh, insinuation about why it was that they did this. And, and while I can't talk, you know, like about the specifics of that, because even this discussion that we're having now is something uh, that they will use uh, to construct a narrative that fits these ridiculous charges that they have imposed on us. I can tell you this for sure, uh, that the charges are bogus and that uh, nothing that they are claiming that we did is something that we haven't done uh, since the founding of the African People's Socialist Party uh, itself in 1972. And since my activism, uh, which preceded that, uh, you know, uh, by, by almost a decade. So, so uh, for, in fact, the African People's Socialist Party is, uh, is experiencing, uh, did experience the 50th anniversary uh, in May of, of this year. So it's all bogus, it's nonsense, but it's insidious uh, because this is the same FBI uh, that integrated itself for the purpose of more than 100 years ago for the purpose of, of, of infiltrating the movement led by Marcus Garvey. Uh, that's the first Black person they brought into the FBI was for the purpose of destroying the Garvey movement uh, that had 11 million followers all around the world, especially in Africa. Uh, and of course, uh, we know uh, the history of Martin Luther King and how they hounded King and even tried to get him to commit suicide, the things they did to Malcolm X. And, and that's just uh, Paul Robeson, who was brought before House of Un-American Activities Committee. Were, are you or were you ever a member of the Communist Party kind of garbage that, and you know, like Russia somehow 
has always, in, in most of this, uh, except for Garvey, you know, uh, there's this, this specter of Russia that's someplace being used uh, because it's one problem that they have is the history uh, that the United States government and most of Europe, um, the history that they have with black people in Africa and every place else. Uh, so to say that we are continuing that war uh, to maintain the captivity of black people and to frustrate any effort that they may make in to be free, uh, they're not fighting black people, they're fighting Russians. And so rather than fight Russians in the real world uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, they're fighting Russia in the black community of St. Petersburg, Florida and in St. Louis, Missouri, which is absolutely ridiculous. And I think anybody can see through it, given an opportunity to do so. But they've been, they've been, been running this Russia, 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 Russia thing for such a long period of time. Uh, and they've created this, this information silo uh, so that most people, and, and the truth of the matter is that generally speaking, Americans are politically the most backwards people in the world in terms of living right in the center, in the heart of, of the most oppressive ex, uh, system that that exports oppression and exploitation all around the world are most ignorant about what it is that this government does. And so they, Russia, 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 one. And two, uh, because there's this insidious assumption in the minds of most white people globally that African people are too stupid uh, to know what our own interests are, to organize ourselves, that somebody else must have come and told us that we need to be free and that we are mistreated in the United States. So if you hear, Black people saying something is happening to us bad. It's not because it's happening to us. It's because this is Russia actually talking through these black people. And it's Russia talking to the people complaining about George Floyd. And it's Russia talking to the people complaining about the horrible conditions that we experience as a people. That is, that is what, they, what they have constructed and they rely uh, on a tradition, a history of a mistreatment of African people and a collaboration too often with white people and this notion that African people would be too stupid to understand our own significance and our own interest that, that many people uh, will be uh, able, uh, they, they will be able to confuse a lot of people into believing that the lie. And so it's, a, it's an, a political attack that's being made on us. And the, the, the colonial law uh, is what they're using to carry out a political attack. And that's, that's the situation as, as we understand it. And to clarify something, you have not been charged with anything, right? No, but it, n yes and no. Not, not, they, they, I'm an unindicted co-conspirator. And there are three other persons who are unindicted co-conspirators. And, and uh, they, the African People's Socialist Party, the Uhura Solidarity Movement, the all of these organizations, uh, it's implied that we are also co-conspirators. So it leaves the door open. First of all, uh, there must be something wrong uh, for the US government to say that we are co-conspirators. And no, we haven't been charged with anything. And if the, the really interesting thing about this is the man that they charged in Russia, should he come to the United States? Should he be put on trial? Should he be convicted? Uh, his sentence would be if he got the maximum five years. If I were convicted on what they said he made me do, the maximum sentence is 10 years. So, so I mean, it's just the most ridiculous thing. It's an attempt to crush the Black Liberation Movement uh, and, and, uh, and also uh, the support, because what we've done is incredible. I, I want to invite you, I want to invite uh, uh, people who are viewing this, come to St. Louis and see for yourself. I mean, because there's this, this implicit in this notion of being unindicted co-conspirators as this group lurking out there in, in the dark recesses of, of, of America that's, that's making all this stuff happen. You come to St. Louis, see the Black Power Blueprint, see how we've transformed an entire African community in North St. Louis. Come to St. Petersburg, Florida. Go to Oakland, California. Go to Philadelphia, where we've created uh, a farmers, uh, a, a, a One Africa, One Nation market uh, that allows uh, uh, more than 100 vendors to come and feed their families as a consequence of what we put on the ground there. Uh, this, is, this is who we are, and this is what they're intended to destroy, uh, because our success in uplifting communities and things like this uh, makes us a negative statement about the government. Because if we can do it with no resources, if we can win white people in this country uh, to participate in giving reparations to the African community through us so that we can build a basketball court 
uh, in North Philadelphia where children are accustomed to playing in the streets and don't have any access to anything, which impacts not just recreation, but how people begin to perceive themselves being forced to live under these circumstances. If we can open up a bakery cafe uh, where we're going to train uh, African men and women coming out of the prison system to, to, you know, to participate in that industry and then purchase and create a, 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 a fourplex and, 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 and actually furnish that so that there'll be a place for them to live while they participate in this African international workforce uh, uh, that we are creating, why doesn't the government do it? And, and the problem is that because, because the government wants African people to live the way we live for a number of reasons that we don't have to go into, but the fact is that we do it. And if you look at history, you see that those organizations that's been most involved in changing the condition of black people on the ground, the Marcus Garvey with 11 million, but first time in the history of, of, of black people since our captivity, we own steamship lines through Garvey and they framed Garvey up, the FBI and others and got rid of him. Malcolm X who believed in self-determination, Martin Luther King who was waging a struggle, uh, a, a poor people's campaign, organizing poor people to take, this, these are the forces that they attack. And, and, and those who are effective, they named the Black Panther Party, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, who was the executive director of this uh, domestic political police that they call the FBI. In 1969, declared that the Black Panther Party was the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States, not the Russians, not the Chinese, but Black people who are living in housing projects and things like that throughout this country. That's who's under assault now. And we're not going to let them get away with saying that it's it's the Russians' idea uh, to fight for reparations. It's the Russians' idea uh, to complain about what's happened to Black people and to make economic development happen in our communities. We've always done this. In 1950s, you may be familiar, 1952, around that same period, Paul Robeson and others went to the United Nations uh, talking about reparations, recharge, genocide. That was the thing that they took to the United Nations. So somehow, for the Russians to have discovered this uh, and rediscovered through the Russians, it's just so bogus on its face. But they don't expect this to be significant based on some adherence to law. It is the assumptions that's out there about Black people. It's the assumption about the crisis that this country is going through now. It's the Russia, Russia, Russia thing and the absolute reality uh, that the United States is losing its place as the big hegemon, you know, like in the world. Uh, things are happening in the real world. And, and a lot of people are concerned and un, un, made unsettled by this, and they don't have good explanations for it, except for the explanations coming from uh, some mouthpiece of the United States government. And Hoover, who you mentioned, of course, is heavily tied to the police raid in Chicago that killed Fred Hampton. I'm wondering if that was going through your mind as this was happening to you. Of course. I mean, that was the thing that I thought they were going to kill me, especially when I walk out the door. Why would they have, why would they train, you know, not just one? But all of these laser dots from automatic weapons on my chest when I walk up. Of course, Fred Hampton. They went to Fred Hampton's house at four o'clock in the morning. It's five o'clock now, and they come to my house. Uh, and and so that's the thought that's on my mind. Of course, Bobby Hutton, who was killed in nineteen uh, uh, two days, uh, April sixth, uh, uh, nineteen sixty-eight, I think it was, after King. Uh, you know he. He uh, was shot a number of times because he came out with his hands up and he stumbled and they, and, they, and they killed him. So this is on my mind. I know the history of this government as it relates to black people, the assassinations, the, all of this. So yeah, I'm thinking Fred Hampton. That's what my wife was thinking too when she came down the stairs. She remembered Fred Hampton. All of us do, all of us do. And so, yeah, that's, and, and you mentioned Fred Hampton and. But, you know, the United States government uh, declared, uh, uh, put together a program to deal with uh, what they call Black nationalist hate groups that included Black Panther Party and anybody uh, from uh, within the African community that was talking about uh, independence, talking about anti-colonialism, et cetera. And the Black Panther Party, of course, is one of them and, and was, the, was the main target, but others of, of us were targeted as well. Uh, you mentioned Move and Marcus Garvey. I, I knew about, uh, of course, Fred Hampton, uh, MLK, uh, Malcolm X. I didn't know about the FBI and Marcus Garvey, and I want to make sure our listeners and viewers know about Move. So could you tell us about the FBI and Marcus Garvey and then also elaborate on what happened to Move in Philadelphia? Yeah, uh, Marcus Garvey was an incredible leader. He was born in Jamaica. He came to the United States. He had built an organization in 1914 uh, that was called Universal uh, 
Negro Improvement Associations and African Communities League. He moved to Harlem, New York, uh, later uh, sometime around the same time frame of the first Imperialist World War. Uh, and uh, he built this extraordinary organization of Black people all around the world, including people from India and Australia who were members of this organization. And so uh, was from you know, uh, up to 11 million members and, and, and associates in 1921, uh, 1920, they had uh, uh, in, in New York uh, at the Madison Square Garden, uh, the uh, Negro Convention, uh, Convention of the Negro Peoples of the World that was attended by 50 to one, to, uh, 25 to 50,000 Black people. Before social media, before uh, cell phones and any of this, uh, people came from all around the world. Black people did. And it's the, the estimate is, is, is such, this wide range from 25 to 50,000 people, because Madison Square Garden, where the thing was held, couldn't hold all the people. So there were thousands of people outside massive parades being held uh, there. And this is uh, the meeting where the, the black people voted on the red, black, and green. That flag that people see uh, that they mistakenly call the, the Pan-African flag or some other thing like that. But that came from that meeting where black people voted on this and said that every nation has a flag and we have to have our own flag. And the red, black, and green came from that Black people from around the world voted Marcus Garvey at a time where all of us were living under colonial domination with the exception of the nominal freedom of Liberia and Ethiopia. They voted that Marcus Garvey to provisional uh, uh, president of Africa and, and you know, various other interests and instruments of, uh, of nation of statehood was created by that organization. And uh, what the U.S. government did was, uh, and as I mentioned, they bought steamship lines. This was extraordinary. There hasn't been black steamship lines owned by black people or shipping lines since that time. And this was an extraordinary move so that black people could trade with each other from the Americas, Africa, you know, uh, uh, and, and various other places. So uh, the U.S. government brought its first African into the FBI for the purpose of infiltrating the Marcus Garvey's movement. They needed somebody black to do that. And you can Google most of the stuff that I'm telling you about this, you know. And uh, so they, they, they uh, caused splits in the organization, factions, and they decided that Marcus Garvey had used the males to defraud uh, people. And the males, of course, were used to, uh, for people who were buying stock in the steamship lines, et cetera. This was this was the fundamental economic venture uh, uh, that had been initiated. And so uh, this was attacked and, and Garvey eventually was uh, taken to court. Uh, he was tried uh, and he was convicted and sentenced to, I think five years in prison. And he spent some of that time uh, in prison before, uh, uh, before they expelled him from uh, the United States back to Jamaica. Uh, uh, he was a, an extraordinary force. And uh, like I said, you, this stuff can be researched uh, relatively easily. Uh, and then, of course, the, the thing with MOVE, uh, where uh, this organization uh, that was called, it was called MOVE, uh, M-O-V-E. Uh, it was founded by uh, an African who called himself John Africa. And uh, they, among other things, were environmentalists, back to Africa kind of group living in the heart of the African community. Uh, and the government had been attacking them under Rizzo. And you must Google Rizzo, uh, who is the one who raided the Black Council Party offices. Uh, I think that might've been 1970 or something like that and forced Panthers out in the middle of, of the winter and their underclothes, et cetera. Uh, and with, photographers there so this thing could shoot all around the world and demoralize Black people who had looked at the Panthers as, you know, force that was uh, going to be a part of our freedom and liberation. So Rizzo is the one who did this uh, when he was chief of police. He's, he bragged about that he had enough troops uh, who could go into Cuba and overthrow the government. This is Rizzo. And so he became the mayor also in Philadelphia, and they dropped the bomb. Uh, uh, ostensibly to get the people out of the home that was owned actually by uh, a person who was a sister, a relative of uh, the founder of the organization. Uh, they attacked the house. This was the second time they had attacked them. They did it, I think, again earlier 
in something like 1975 or 78, uh, uh, and they attacked the house and they they went and got military grade plastic explosion and a military helicopter and they dropped the bomb uh, on that house that destroyed 60 some odd houses, killed uh, 11 uh, children, uh, women and men. And that was an outcome of that. And that again uh, was uh, in Philadelphia. Those are two of the incidents that you, you mentioned. And of course, Fred Hampton, uh, who was one of the remaining leaders of the Black Panther Party, who was not in jail, who hadn't been chased out of the country uh, uh, at a time where the FBI had declared uh, the, the Black Panther Party the greatest uh, internal threat to this country, and, and where John Mitchell, who was then uh, the Attorney General, uh, had said that by the end of 1969, uh, the Black Panther Party would be destroyed. And so on December 4th, 1969, uh, they attacked uh, the house of Fred Hampton, West Monroe, in, in, in Chicago. Uh, and and they, they, after having drugged uh, Hampton, having used a, 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 an informant, an agent, to put drugs in his Kool-Aid so that he was asleep and couldn't be awakened when they came into the house, uh, they shot their way into the house. They killed uh, Mark Clark, a young man who was on security, and they had a diagram of where Hampton was sleeping. And so they shot through the wall and uh, uh, through the walls with uh, automatic uh, rifle fire. fire. Uh, and then they, they, they and uh, Hampton's wife, Akul uh, and Jerry, talks about she was, she was almost nine months pregnant in bed with him. And she talked about how she could feel the mattress vibrating uh, that they were on from the, from the bullets that were coming uh, through the wall, uh, et cetera. When the police finally entered, stopped firing and came into the house, they dragged her out of the bed by her hair and, uh, and pushed up against the wall. And one of them, well, what do, you, what do you know we got abroad here talking about her? And then she heard a voice said that he'll barely make it talking about Fred and then gunshots saying he's good and dead now. And then the Chicago police working with the FBI, by the way, uh, when they did this, the Chicago police you know, uh, you know, did that chant like Fred is dead. You know, it was a popular song. Uh, that was came out of Chicago uh, at the time about drug pushers and stuff like that and how drugs would kill you. And Fred is Dead was a song, and that's what the Chicago police were chanting, you know, after they murdered Fred Hampton. So, uh, you know, this is just typical of the war that's being made against, against our people, and that's just in the United States. That's not the murder of Lumumba, where they cut him up in little pieces. U.S. CIA, who were working uh, for Eisenhower, and who was in power there, who was what you call lame duck, and then Kennedy, who was coming in. Uh, they, they murdered the movement. They cut him up in little pieces. They put him in vats of acid and then burned it afterwards. And just recently, uh, they sent a tooth back to Congo so that some, some semblance of a funeral could happen for him. That's what the United States government is doing. And then what I'm doing now, and even having this discussion, uh, implicit in the charges that alluded, alleged against me, uh, is not me saying this, Russians saying this through me. And then this is uh, part of this whole, this whole trap that I'm supposed to be in and anybody's supposed to be in if we're going to talk about what's happened uh, to African people. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. What do you think of the calls? Uh, of course, a lot of Trump fans who said nothing about uh, the raid on your center uh, are now saying abolish the FBI. What do you think of the calls to abolish the FBI? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, Chairman, look, thanks so much for your time. And you wh so where can people go again to support your movement and learn more about the African People's Socialist Party? Well, I would really, I would really call on people to go to APSP Uhuru, U-H-U-R-U dot org. Also, the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, um, led by an extraordinary uh, young woman uh, who's based in St. Louis, uh, but it's an international uh, uh, component of our movement also. It's having uh, its uh, convention on September between on, between September second and fourth, and it's going to be in St. Louis. And I would ask people to register to visit. Uh, so it's going to be virtual and otherwise. Uh, and so you can go to INP 
D-U-M, NPDUM, I-N-P-D-U-M 2022 Eventbrite. And finally, uh, brothers and sisters and comrades, um, the 14th annual uh, Black People's March on the White House is happening November 5th and 6th. This is through the Black is Black Coalition that we organize. It's comprised of 18 different organizations. That's part of the whole process of pulling together a movement after this military assault that killed so many leaders in the past, and which is another reason that we're a problem. But uh, this mobilization uh, uh, will be happening November 5th and 6th in Washington, DC. People can go and get more information. Go to blackisbackcoalition.org, blackisbackcoalition.org, and plan to be in DC uh, on November it's uh, uh, 5th and 6th. Uh, there's going to be a rally, a march in the White House, and then a conference following that. And obviously, we're going to have to take up this question that you and I are talking about now uh, as a part of that process. So I call on people to join with that and go to APSPUhuru.org and you can find much of what it is that I'm talking about now. And I want to thank you for having us. And you also have your Omali Taught Me Sunday video series, right? On YouTube? Oh, yes. Uh, Omali Taught Me Sunday. I didn't know you were aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, a study we do every Sunday uh, and it happens now uh, at 10 Eastern time, uh, 9 Central time. Uh, and you can get information on that too through going to apsbuhuru.org. Ask about Omali Taught Me. It's a study we do regularly. Thank you so much. That was great. That was really informative and a case that should be getting a lot more attention. Right. But yeah. great, we could cover it here. Yeah, you listening, Rand Paul? Get on this case. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see it. I think uh, Republican outrage at the FBI is limited to their raids on one guy, Donald J. Trump, not Black liberation activists, unfortunately. Right. Well, that was a great interview, and we really wish them luck with this case that obviously for legal reasons, they couldn't get into a lot of details, but we wish them luck, and we're going to do everything we can to, to amplify what's going on with them. And to get more, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com, sign up and support us there. Yeah. And we'll see you next week. Yeah, really interesting conversation. You, you will definitely not want to miss. See you next week. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.